want to want you to ask you to grab your Bibles this morning and turn them to Luke chapter eight. As we enter the eighth chapter, we are coming into what is really the climax of Jesus' Galilean ministry. He's making his way through all the cities and towns and villages of Galilee, and we still have a lot to discover in Luke's gospel. The next two chapters, Luke 8 and Luke 9, we're going to see Jesus teaching the crowds in parables. And then as we discover the reason why Jesus taught in parables, we're going to come to understand what he understood at the time. He knew that his time in Galilee was drawing to a close. In fact, toward the end of the chapter, Luke 9, 51, we read, When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. That's kind of a a turning point. I'm a watershed in Luke's Gospel. That begins a series of movements from that point on throughout the rest of Luke's Gospel toward Jerusalem. His march, long march toward Jerusalem, which culminates ultimately, historically, theologically, it's all going to end at Golgotha, at the cross. Still, before Jesus leaves the region of Galilee and makes that march, we have a lot to read about, a lot to learn. We're going to get to see Jesus in the next chapters calming a storm on the Sea of Galilee. We're going to see his dramatic encounter with a Gerasene demoniac. We're going to see Jesus raising yet another person from the dead, Jairus' daughter from the dead. We're going to see him also feed a crowd of 5,000 men. That's not counting all the women and children, so tens of thousands of people fed in that miracle. And what all this points to in the next couple of chapters, power over the natural world, authority over the demonic world, power, authority over death itself, not to mention that positive, creative miracle of creating food, power over creation itself. All of that power points to Jesus' deity. God is not going to allow that deity to remain hidden from us. Even as it comes out in these uh, moments in the text, He's going to reveal it. He's going to pull back the veil of humanity in the transfiguration to reveal Jesus' divine glory. So there's still a lot to come. There's a lot to see. Even as Jesus still ministers in and around Galilee. And as Christ is still working in and around Galilee, Luke is here in Luke chapter 8, verse 1. He's putting us back on the itinerant path to follow Jesus on his ministry. Take a look there at Luke 8, 1 through 8, as Luke takes us back to the flow of Jesus' itinerant ministry. Soon afterward, He, that is Jesus, went on through cities and villages, proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. And the twelve were with him, and also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. Mary, called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out. And Joanna, the wife of Cusa, Herod's household manager. And Susanna, and many others who provided for them out of their means. And when a great crowd was gathering and people from town after town came to him, he said in a parable, a sower went out to sow his seed. 
And as he sowed, some fell along the path and was trampled underfoot, and the birds of the air devoured it. Some fell on the rock, and as it grew up, it withered away because it had no moisture. And some fell among the thorns, and the thorns grew up with it and choked it. And some fell into good soil and grew and yielded a hundredfold. As he said these things, he called out, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Now the verses at the very beginning there form a narrative transition. Luke is taking us from the didactic content of the Sermon on the Mount in chapter 6 and then from the more focused narratives of chapter 7. We, talked, you know, we saw there the centurion servant, the widow's son, the teaching on John the Baptist, and the forgiven woman. Luke is bringing us out of those narratives and back into the normal flow of Jesus' regular pattern, which is in and around Galilee, an itinerant preaching ministry. So as we join Jesus here in Luke chapter 8, Jesus is back on the road. And when the great crowd of people gathers, he tells them this parable of the sower going out to sow seed. And just to set your expectations for this morning, we're not going to get into that parable today. That's for next week. For today, we're just going to look at those verses of transition, verses 1 to 3. And I can imagine you're thinking, a whole sermon on a narrative transition. Yeah. This is more than just a transition. And I know you can see that. If you look carefully, Luke has given us here far more than what's necessary just to make a simple narrative transition from one account to another. In fact, I just want to prove that to you, show you what I mean. Just start reading in chapter 8 again. And this time, let's see what that sounds like if we skip over verses 2 and 3. It says, Soon after her, afterward he went on through the cities and villages, proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. Now skip to verse 4. And when a great crowd was gathering, and people from town after town came to him, he said in a parable, and so on. Makes perfect sense that way, doesn't it? Reading it that way, that in and of itself would be sufficient for moving the reader from the previous account and into the parable of the sower. But we would obviously miss out on some details that, frankly, the Holy Spirit thinks are important for us to understand. Like what? Well, we wouldn't know the nature and the composition of Jesus' full entourage, which consisted of His twelve disciples, yes, but also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. We wouldn't have the names or the background of some of the women who followed Jesus' disciples. We wouldn't be able to discern the significance of the information that Luke has provided about them. And we'd miss out on the important fact that it was by means of these women that Jesus and His twelve disciples were able to eat food, to have provision for their basic necessities while they traveled from city to town to village? Now, is all that information important for us to know? Luke seemed to think so. And, more importantly, the Holy Spirit seems to think so. 
He's included it in Scripture. So, that is going to be the nature of our investigation this morning, to discover what the Spirit wants us to understand from these few verses of transition. As we do move from one account into another, why is this, why is this detail here? Let me give you, here at the very outset, what I think is the bottom line. Sort of a, maybe a lens through which we should see this rather short but very vital passage. Obviously, Luke's gospel draws attention to the role of women in the ministry of Jesus Christ. Back at the beginning of this gospel, we read a lot, a lot about Mary. We listened in as the angel Gabriel revealed to her her unique, one-of-a-kind role in bringing about the miracle of the incarnation through the virgin's womb. We read about Mary her relationship with Elizabeth, and we heard them talk together. We read about and heard from Anna the prophetess. We read the tender account of Jesus' mercy toward the widow whose only son had died. He raised that boy from the dead and gave him back to his mother. A very tender, tender picture of his care for the widow. In the account we, we just got through studying for, spent three weeks on it, We studied another woman, a woman who was forgiven of her many, many sins and has become to us in all historical perpetuity, she becomes an example of true worship motivated by much love. Still ahead in Luke's Gospel, we'll read of Jesus healing a hemorrhaging woman, raising Jairus' little girl from the dead. We're going to get into the account of Mary and Martha, which features characteristics and in, in, in the women's relationship unique to the struggles, struggles that women face in hospitality and serving to instruct all believers, male and female alike, on true priority. Women, all through Luke's Gospel, women feature positively through his Gospel. Whether they're portrayed in real-life settings, or whether they are talked about in the parables that Jesus tells to illustrate truths about the kingdom. In fact, in all that we read about women in Luke's Gospel, you know what I never read about women? This is clear in contrast to all that's written about men. You know what we don't find? We don't find anything negative. Not one negative word Written about women in Luke's Gospel. Not that I can find. J.C. Ryle expressed the point this way. He said this, quote, It was not a woman who sold our Lord for 30 silver coins. It was not a woman who fled from the Lord in the Garden of Gethsemane. It was not a woman who denied Him three times in the high priest's house. But... They were women who wailed and lamented when Jesus was led out to be crucified. They were women who stood by the cross to the end. And they were women who first visited the grave where the Lord had been laid. End quote. Women feature in Luke's Gospel. And while not in greater proportion to men, they always feature positively as examples of great loyalty 
and courage of character. Women are treated with honor in Luke's gospel. They're handled with dignity and respect as they should be. That example ought to serve, even just illustrated there, ought to serve as a word of exhortation to men, to all men, especially in this highly undignified, sexualized age, an age of seduction and violence against women, this age of Me Too and all the rest of that that strikes at the dignity of women, Christian men ought to be known by how they treat women. All women. Even the women who don't want to treat themselves with dignity or act like women but want to act like men. We need to treat them too with dignity and honor and great respect because they are women. So obvious is Luke's charitable treatment of women and dignified treatment of women that one commentator has called Luke's gospel the gospel of womanhood. And here is where I want to add a word of caution. Luke's gospel is not about women. It's not about men either. Luke's gospel is the good news about the Lord and Savior of us all, men and women. It's about Jesus Christ. The involvement of women in Jesus' ministry is certainly not unimportant, but neither is it all-important. It's not the main point of the Gospel, even if it is tangentially related to the main point. Jesus Christ remains the central figure of the Gospel. Salvation of fallen sinners for the glory of God is Christ's chief end, and that means both women and men are in need of salvation, which is why even in these few verses, we find both men and women following Jesus Christ and involved in His itinerant ministry. So on the one hand, we need to acknowledge how women feature in Luke's Gospel with dignity, honor, respect. But on the other hand, we shouldn't read Luke's Gospel. We shouldn't read the second volume of Luke, which is the book of Acts. We shouldn't read any of this through the modern lens of women's liberation and feminism and all of that. Yes, this Gospel does demonstrate a right and proper view of women, co-equal in creation, but also co-culpable in the fall. Just as fallen as men, women are just as in need of salvation as men are. When Christ comes, we find that they are, along with men, objects of His saving love. They are individual souls whom Christ loves and for whom He died. That's the lens through which we need to read this passage. These verses show our Lord here on the move. He is advancing the message of the kingdom of God, which has been his priority from the very beginning. These verses also show us the means by which that ministry happens. And this is the lens through which we need to read this passage in particular. Yes, women are vital partners in Jesus' ministry. And as this passage proves, 
They've been doing gospel work since the very beginning. Women have always been, they always will be, essential partners in the gospel work of advancing the kingdom of God. These verses, though, aren't making the point just about women's participation in the gospel, but they are assuming the point. The focus remains on Christ. The focus remains on the good news of His gospel, which is exactly how it ought to be. So with that in mind, let's get into the text and see how does ministry happen. Ministry happens, if I could just summarize it this way, ministry happens when we do God's work God's way. Ministry happens when we do God's work God's way. When we pursue God's ends, His goals, and when we use God's means to achieve His ends. That's how ministry happens. So we're going to organize uh, this morning's message around those two points, the end and the means. It should be written there in your bulletin. We see the end and the means. And as we see the end and the means this morning, we're going to gain clarity about the text. We're going to gain clarity about Jesus' ministry about his followers, his disciples, how it all got done, we're also going to think about our own participation in the ministry of the gospel even today, in our own time. Okay? So, two points, the end and the means. First point, the end. Priority of kingdom proclamation. The end is the priority of kingdom proclamation to proclaim the kingdom of God. It's very clear in verse 1. We're not going to spend a lot of time on this, but look again there at verse 1. It says, Soon afterward, he went on through cities and villages, proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. No great specificity intended there as to the exact time or place. That's intentional on Luke's part. There's no focus on a particular time, just soon afterward. And that does connect this to the previous account of the forgiven woman who anointed Jesus' feet, but no specific time, just a soon afterward. And then all we know about the place is a non-specific reference to cities and villages, or perhaps better translated, towns and villages. Again, this is intentional on Luke's part not to draw attention to specific places. Of greater importance to Luke here is not the particular time or the place, but the manner of Jesus' ministry and the focus of His ministry. The manner and the focus. What's the manner of Jesus' ministry? The manner of His ministry comes out in that clause, He went on through cities and villages. Believe it or not, there's a lot more there than meets the eye. The word that's translated cities, it's the word polis, which uh, can refer, it's where we get our word politics from. It can refer to a larger city like Jerusalem, or smaller cities like Capernaum, it's used that way in chapter 4, verse 31. Or even towns like Nazareth in chapter 4, verse 29. Or Nain in chapter 7, verse 11. The word that's translated villages, that refers to something that's maybe like a small cluster of homes or houses. Maybe small little mud hovels or, or larger brick structures, but just a small cluster of houses you might see together. The meaning of the verb that's used here, diaduo, 
And the imperfect tense of that verb indicates that Jesus took a very slow and deliberate mode of travel as he went from city to town to village. Jesus moved slowly. He moved rather methodically from one city, one town or village to another, and then another, and then another. And the grammar here actually indicates great care on his part. It indicates focus. It indicates an intentionality that Jesus showed when he came to every place, whether it was a larger city or a small and insignificant village. And though he's here pursuing his father's agenda, Jesus is never in a hurry. He always takes time to, to care. No matter how big or small, he takes time. If there are people there, Jesus is going there. And that, I think, is an image that really does capture the heart of Jesus' shepherding concern for people. What makes a place significant to our God, our Lord, and our Savior? It's not its size. It's not its industry. It's not its commerce. It's not its political influence. It's not its attractiveness. What makes a place significant is its people. Whenever we read about Jesus' itinerant ministry, we shouldn't see Him moving from village to village like some would-be Messiah who's trying to curry the favor and garner support of the commoners. You know, He wants to get a following and try to make some big noise when He gets to Jerusalem. That is not at all what He's doing. What we're seeing in little glimpses like this one, little insights, is how Jesus is the great shepherd of the sheep. I hear talk of church planting at times, and sometimes I really cannot stand the sound of it because they talk about going to strategic places. Everybody wants to plant a church like in some city in California near a beach or some big metropolitan area like New York or London or Miami or whatever it is. I understand some of that thinking. But I don't like the sound of it when it comes off as dismissing what seems to others as insignificant. Places like perhaps Greeley. You know why this is significant? Because we, Christ's people, are here. That's his view of it anyway. Jesus takes great interest in caring for the sheep and going from town and city and village to village, to village, to village, to see how people are doing. Not only that, this shows Jesus getting into people's actual lives. He's not proclaiming the Gospel from some high and lofty perch. It's become common today among pastors, sadly, to speak to congregations from video screens. And if they really, really make it big, to speak from conference stages with images, broadcast onto huge video screens so that those back in the nosebleed seats and the cheap seats can see their faces. Look, that isn't Jesus' way of shepherding at all. He went to where the people were. He visited people where they actually lived. He saw them in their homes. He got into their towns, into their villages, and mixed among them. That is the manner of His 
ministry, one that demonstrated shepherding care for families, for individual people. He visited them where they lived. And his shepherding concern then sets the focus of his ministry, which is to achieve God's goal, to pursue God's end, to fulfill his mission. Luke 8.1, proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. Two verbs there, both of them in participle form, proclaiming and bringing the good news. Or another way to render those verbs, preaching and evangelizing. Jesus is moving through town and village after village after village, and he's preaching and he's evangelizing about the kingdom of God. The first verb there, preaching, is keruso. Keruso. It means to make an official announcement, like a royal herald who is sent out from a king or a kingdom in an official capacity, and he's making an announcement in public. This is an out loud public declaration. That's how Jesus did it, by means of public proclamation. But the second verb, evangelizomai, refers to what he actually proclaimed. This is about the content. We get the word evangel or evangelism or evangelical from that verb, euangelizomai. It's a combination of two words, actually, which mean together good message or good news. This is what Jesus announced from the very start of his Galilean ministry, preaching to family and friends in his own hometown of Nazareth back in Luke 4. Uh, You can look at it there, chapter 4, verses 18 and 19. He said, quoting from Isaiah 61, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. That is the good news of God's kingdom, preached by the Messiah, the King of that kingdom. And He is eager to preach it. He is joyful about announcing good news to tell everyone that God's favor rests upon all those who believe in Him. Jesus preached a form of that good news in the Sermon on the Mount, Luke 6, 20-23, when He said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you and exclude and revile and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day. Leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven. It's good news. It's good news that overcomes all of that. Poverty and hunger and sorrow and hatred. It's good news. Along with the liberating message of freedom from poverty of spirit, from hunger for God, for sorrow over sin, there was an accompanying power that punctuated Jesus' ministry. When John's disciples came to relay a question from John the Baptist, they asked, are you the one who is to come? Or should we look for another? And Jesus answered them. Remember what He said? Go tell John what you have seen, what you have heard. 
The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, and the poor have the good news preached to them. So with that message, armed with the power of God to heal, to cast out demons, even to raise up the dead, is it any wonder that Jesus rejoiced to go from place to place and bring that good news Salvation from sin. Reconciliation to God. No more wrath, but complete blessing and favor. It's any wonder that He rejoiced to bring that message to every city and town and village. Beloved, that has to be our priority too. Amen? What other message is there? What other hope is there? There's no hope in this world's salvation. There's no hope in this world's medication. There's no hope in this world's politics. There's no hope in this world's armies or power or wealth, fame. It all ends at the grave. And then you reckon with your Creator. And if your sin is forgiven, the gates of heaven are open wide. Let's not stuff around with all these smaller insignificant things of this world. Let's focus on the Gospel. I like how the biblical scholar, lexicographer, Cessless Speak, it's a Greek name, he summarized the characteristics of the euangelion, the Gospel. And he took it from the entire New Testament and kind of compiled it into a very poignant, power-packed paragraph. He said this good news is a treasure from which one may draw infinitely. A mystery unveiled of which Paul is priest. That is to say, Christ died for our sins. And the euangelion produces soteria, which is a Greek word that means salvation. The euangelion produces soteria is a force that bears fruit and makes progress. It makes its course across the world. Its characteristics can be noted. Number one, it is revealed by God to humankind, so it is true. Number two, one must believe it, obey it, base one's hope on it, taste its peace, because it is good news of immortality. Number three, it must be proclaimed to others. Number four, no matter the cost, Number five, one serves it and defends it by word, conduct, and action because, number six, it is possible to stand in its way, disobey it, and forget it, even falsify it and corrupt it. But, number seven, whoever holds fast the gospel has been begotten to eternal life and shares in the sanctification of the Spirit. End quote. Beloved, that is the end for which Christ came. To proclaim that Gospel. To evangelize His people. To secure the hope of that Gospel through His death on the cross and His resurrection for the justification of all who believe that Gospel. Beloved, that is the hope for which we exist too. To join Him in that Gospel work. To proclaim the Kingdom of God that others might share in our joy too. 
Well, as much as we'd like to put up some tents and a camp here just a little bit longer to keep moving and do justice to the text before us today, we need to move from the end to the means. From the priority of kingdom proclamation to point two, the means. Participation in kingdom propagation. The participants in kingdom propagation, propagation meaning simply to spread it, to spread the kingdom. This is how we engage in kingdom ministry. We set as our priority the end that God has in mind, proclaiming and defending the gospel. And then we operate according to the proper means that he sets forth. We're going to glean some important principles this morning by way of implication, and we'll kind of bring those out, list them, wrap them up at the end. But now here, just notice the end of verse 1 and into verse 2, we see two sets of participants in kingdom propagation. Notice there the 12 men who were with them, and then number 2, also some women. Verses 2 and 3 elaborate on the women, their names, their role in Jesus' ministry. But let's read the whole and then we'll make some general statements and then return to the parts. It says there, the twelve were with him and also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. Mary called Magdalene from whom seven demons had gone out and Joanna, the wife of Cusa, Herod's household manager, and Susanna and many others who provided for them out of their means. Starting with the twelve. Just a quick point, not much is said about them, but still, we want to know in what way the twelve participated in kingdom propagation. They're listed here, they're named there. Here there's a significance to them. You might jot this down as sub-point A, which is this. Sub-point A, the twelve are learning. The twelve are learning. It's very simple, I know, but it's true. The twelve are learning. The twelve at this point in Jesus' ministry, they're still in training. This is actually the first mention of the twelve since Luke introduced them by name in Luke 6, 12-16. They are the twelve men for whom Jesus prayed and whom He chose from the rest of His disciples to be named as apostles. Those who He planned to send out. They would one day guide off of Jesus the chief cornerstone of the building, and the twelve apostles would become the very foundations of the church. They would guide off of Him and lay the foundation of the church by preaching and teaching what Jesus Christ would later reveal by His Spirit. So what's their purpose here? Well, as I said at this point, they're still pretty green. They're still ignorant of, of many things. So their job is to act as learners, as students. They are to be faithful, obedient disciples. They have to do whatever Jesus tells them to do. They also need to watch and learn. They need to listen carefully to Jesus' teaching, to observe His ministry, to support it in whatever way He says, do this. Soon Jesus would send them out and Call them to go and do likewise. You can turn the page to Luke 9, 1 and 2. And tells us there that He called the twelve together. And here He gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. 
And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. So the apostles, at least in beginning of Luke chapter 8, they still have the training wheels on, so to speak. And as disciples, they need to listen intently to Jesus. They need to serve him in whatever way he commands. So that's the 12. What about the women? How are they participating in kingdom propagation. Might write down subpoint B in your notes. Subpoint B, the women are supporting. The women are supporting. Oh yes, they're learning too. They're listening intently. They're watching. They're picking up everything that is going on. But the women here is according to the text, they are supporting. Text says the twelve are with them and also some of the women, and those women provided for them out of their means. It's very clear. The women provided for them. Who's the them? Masculine pronoun there. Plural. Referring to Jesus and His disciples. So they, the women, provided for those men out of there, and that's a feminine pronoun, also plural, refers to the women in this text, the ones who are named and the ones who are not named. The women provided for the men out of their means, out of their own subsistence. So let me speak here to first the general situation and then we're going to hurry on to the specifics. In a general sense, this passage is what helps us to understand how Jesus and His disciples subsisted while they were engaged in an itinerant preaching ministry. They had help. And Jesus has no problem revealing in Scripture that I had help by women. Shouldn't be any point of of shame at all to his ministry, even though it would have been in the first century, but that's not how he sees it. I was passed the other day driving down the road here by uh, one of those SUVs, and it had on the back uh, written in pink, girly letters, You've just been passed by a girl. Like, I'm driving a Camry. I'm okay with that. But I just thought about how women even today, it's kind of like a a dig, isn't it? For a woman to put that on her back of her truck. You've just been passed by a woman. As if it's a bad thing. Even women today, I'm assuming probably just by sake of, uh, you know, ratio, she may not have been a believer. But even unbelieving women, they tend to think, don't they? low of themselves? Is that the way God intended? For women to think lowly of themselves? Aren't they, along with men in Genesis 1 and 2, created in the image of God? Male and female, He created them to bear His image, to exercise dominion over the earth. Indeed, He did. Jesus has no problem here putting on the pages of Scripture by His Holy Spirit that he and his disciples were supported by women. Whenever Jesus and his disciples are not being entertained by some generous host, not being fed in someone's home, or more accurately, not offending some host like Simon the Pharisee in the previous text, and not being invited back for seconds, Jesus and his disciples still needed to eat. They're on an itinerant ministry. Jesus had left his father Joseph's carpentry business behind. 
the disciples likewise in obedience to His calling to permanent discipleship. They had also given up their earthly occupations as fishermen, as a tax collector making a lot of money. Jesus purposely, throughout His ministry, did not make use of His miraculous power to provide for Himself and His disciples. Instead, it was by normal means that they ate their bread. It's clear from John 13.29 that the disciples all shared a common purse which Judas Iscariot watched over very carefully. You've got to watch out for all those who are too eager to serve as the treasurer, right? Get on the finance committee. But who replenished the purse, especially when Judas kept dipping into the till? Who replenished the purse when it ran low? According to this text, it was the women. And we find out here, it wasn't just a few women, but many. There were some women, verse 2, who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. We read three names there, Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Susanna. But then verse 3 says there were many others as well. Again, feminine endings, heteri, poli, many other women. Those many women here, it says, provided for Jesus and His disciples. One other general comment here. As we noted, This passage is making a transition from the previous account about the forgiven women into the parables about the kingdom. It's no accident that Luke chooses this place in his gospel at this juncture to note the involvement of women in Jesus' ministry. Female support of rabbis was not uncommon in the first century Palestine, but females following a rabbi as disciples? It was not only unheard of, but it could be seen as something a bit scandalous and improper. Lest this indiscriminate love of Christ become an occasion for any slanderous accusation against Jesus and His disciples, Luke has been very intentional in putting together this Gospel to portray the women as morally righteous and even many of them exemplary in their conduct. He starts with the example of the forgiven woman in Luke 7, 36-50. He follows up immediately after by introducing other women who also worship Jesus at a loving devotion. Motivation of the women is named in the text. In, in Luke seven forty seven. that woman, it says that her sins, which are many, are forgiven for what? She loved much. That's her motivation. The motivation of the women in our text, the motivation for their service is equally clear in verse 2. They had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. They serve and sacrifice in a spirit of love, profound gratitude. The woman in Luke 7 worshiped Jesus with her tears, anointing his feet. These women in Luke 8, they worshiped Jesus with their sweat and their work feeding his stomach, taking care of his physical needs. Both exemplary. All driven by motives of loving gratitude. So by what Luke records here, there's no basis whatsoever for any slanderous charge against Jesus' ministry. There's no basis for accusing the character of the group of men and women who followed him in discipleship. There's nothing questionable, nothing unwholesome going on here at all. Their character 
Their conduct is completely above board, even exemplary. And now with that said, let's get into some of the specifics here as we, as we do here. Perhaps you'll see from how these women are described why Luke found it necessary to defend their honor. Three of them are Mary, Joanna, and Susanna, and they are beautiful women. First, Mary. Mary is distinguished from other, several other Marys in the New Testament that are closely associated with Jesus and the apostles. Jesus' mother, obviously, was Mary. There was Mary, the mother of James and Joseph. There was Mary of Bethany, who is sister of Martha and Lazarus. The disciples set this Mary apart by calling her Mary Magdalene. Magdala is the Greek form of the Hebrew migdal, which means tower or watchtower. So Mary was evidently quite a, a very tall woman. No, I'm just kidding. That's not the case. Actually, she's from a place called Magdala. But the city of Magdala was about a day's walk from Tiberias, on the, going north along the western shore of the Sea of Galilee, Josephus describes the waters in that place around Magdala as pure and fresh. And he says its nature as wonderful as well as its beauty. He describes the cool air of that part of the Sea of Galilee that allowed for all kinds of trees, trees that didn't actually grow in natural situations next to each other. But because of the climate here, it allowed for walnut trees, palm trees, fig trees, all kinds of fruits, grapes, available throughout the year, put to market, available for sale. Because of its climate, its productivity, the area was very wealthy. Alfred Edersheim described Magdala as a city, quote, celebrated for its dye works. That is, the dye that they would extract dye from the shellfish. They'd crush that down and extract a dye, and then the manufactories of fine woolen textures. So a, a dyeing and textile industry was was alive and thriving in Magdala. It was also reputed for its traffic in turtle doves and pigeons for purifications. They would take those in the wagon full down to Jerusalem for sale down there and sadly in the temple um, spaces. But Edersheim noted that the wealth of this city was very great as was its moral corruption. You sadly see urbanization and corruption going together, don't you? Mary she experienced the city's corruption in an extremely sad way in the form of severe case of demon possession. Luke notes in verse 2 that seven demons had gone out of her. Now I want to dispel here a terrible myth about Mary Magdalene. She's been portrayed in popular culture in, frankly, unflattering but really immoral terms. The assumption is wrongly made that she formally engaged in prostitution. Look, having a demon did not make someone fit for any profession, let alone prostitution. Whenever we see cases of demon possession in the Bible, that human host is wrecked by that demon in body and in mind. Some have tried in vain to identify Mary as the woman from the previous narrative. There's no basis for making that connection either. If Luke had wanted to identify her in the previous narrative, he would have done so. If he'd intended to convey in Mary some kind of immoral past, 
He could have done that too, easily. There's not a hint of that here. The text clearly says the condition from which Jesus rescued Mary was not immorality, but demon possession. It was a malady of severe mental, physical debilitation. And the most important words in describing Mary here in the text, and especially from Mary's point of view, the last three words, the demons had gone out. She'd been delivered. So that's Mary. What about Joanna? Luke identifies Joanna in verse 3 as the wife of Cusa, who is Herod's household manager. Her husband is the epitropos, the, the manager, the chief steward of Herod's resources. And his name is interesting. Commentators tell us the name Cusa is most likely a nickname, not his actual name, but a nickname. The name actually means, the word means little pitcher, like to pour, little pitcher. Maybe a bit speculative, but it may be an educated speculation that rather than seeing Cusa as a proper, his, his own name, could actually be a reference to the man's diminutive size as of being a, a smaller, shorter man, but also to his position as the chief steward of Herod's resources. In, in other words, Cusa is the vessel, the little pitcher, that pours forth Herod's wealth. It's not a large vessel, just a little one, a little pitcher. In any case, I think as Luke wrote those words, a wry smile must have formed on his mouth as he wrote those words because this is an indication of a providential twist of irony, isn't it? That the steward of Herod Antipas, the one who imprisoned and beheaded John the Baptist, the forerunner to the Messiah, Herod's resources would be funneled into the little pitcher and poured out in support of the the Messiah's mission. That's just God's way, isn't it? Last name, Susanna. It's a name that means Lily. That's about all we know about her. But this is the only time her name shows up in Scripture. She lets, she's someone that the early church is familiar with, which is why she's named here, but she's unknown in history other than the mention of her name right here. That goes for the rest of the women to whom Luke refers simply as the many others. And their names may not be written in history for us to know, but their names like ours are inscribed in the most important book of all, the Lamb's Book of Life. Just quickly, what do all these women represent? Are they women of renown? They celebrated? Admired by the world? No, not really, not in their time anyway. Mary Magdalene had been known to her contemporaries as a demoniac someone who's tormented in body and mind. She's a, really, frankly, around Magdala, she was a social embarrassment, rather unpredictable. She's a liability, not someone you want around. Joanna, she'd been known in association with her husband. And her husband is recognized for his service to Herod Antipas, the Tetrarch of Galilee, who is, by the way, in league with Rome. She's not admired by any of her contemporaries either. Even as she is a woman of means, she's despised for how she comes by those means. What about Susanna? What stands out about her? It's her virtual anonymity. Her contemporaries would have considered her probably to be an insignificant woman like the rest of the unnamed women who followed after Jesus. 
But listen, who cares what the world thought about them? They are women whom, Hebrews 11.38, of whom the world was not worthy. Why is that? Because they were in service to Jesus Christ. So the most important question is this, not who were they to their contemporaries, who were they to the world around them, who were these women to Jesus? Of what significance were they in his eyes? First, these women followed him in discipleship. They followed him in discipleship. Jesus did not dissuade them from following him as other Jewish rabbis would have. He welcomed their devotion. He welcomed their eagerness to draw near and to learn, to obey, to be involved in supporting his father's goal of him proclaiming the kingdom of God. Second, not only discipleship, but these women followed as his disciples since they did. It's theologically accurate, completely appropriate to say that these are women for whom Christ died. They are then elect women. They are called by God to be saints. They're made fellow partakers of eternal life. So you might refer to them as Saint Mary and Saint Joanna and Saint Susanna because that's exactly what they are. As disciples, elect by God, called to be saints. These women, thirdly, they are now, now identified with Christ as family. They're his family. Frederick Godet put it this way in his commentary, quote, the grateful love of those women whom he filled with his spiritual riches provided for his temporal necessities as well as for those of his disciples. Some pious women spontaneously rendered him the services of mother and sisters. It's a beautiful picture right there. That's what you see actually in Luke 8, verses 19 to 21. Jesus said, Who are my mother and brother and sisters? My mother and my brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it. Fourth thing, these women had the unique privilege. They had the high and the holy honor, verse 3, of providing for Jesus and the apostles out of their means. Christ allowed them to participate in kingdom propagation and in a way that cannot be replicated because Jesus is no longer physically present on the earth. We mentioned earlier, Jesus had the power to provide miraculously for his own physical needs, but he chose against that. He allowed his disciples to have the joy and the privilege of being involved in all of his work. I like how J.C. Ryle described that privilege. He wrote this, Of course, he did not need their help. See Psalm 50, verse 10. The mighty Savior who could multiply a few loaves and fish into food for thousands could have called from the earth as much food as he required. But he did not do so for two reasons. First, he wanted to show us that he was human like us in everything except for sin and that he lived the life of faith through his Father's providence. Second, by allowing his followers to minister to him, he proved their love. True love will count it a pleasure to give anything to the object loved. False love will often talk and profess a great deal, but do 
and give nothing, end quote. These women gave, they supported, they sacrificed, and they counted it all as supreme joy. Got to ask, where were the men? Did Jesus disallow men from supporting him by out of their means? It's not said in the text. And certainly we do know that men supported the disciples, the apostles, out of their means. As churches were formed in Acts, as they sent out Paul and Barnabas and Silas, they sent out missionaries, of course, men and women involved in support, reaching the lost. But listen, a lot of times men, they step back in embarrassment at what they don't deem to be culturally appropriate or socially acceptable. It's what we see throughout the life and ministry of Jesus, right? It wasn't women who fled from Jesus at his crucifixion. It was men who did. Even his closest disciples, even those who knew him for three years, didn't stay near. Men can sometimes suffer from a malady called cowardice. And sometimes women have the moral clarity to see through all of that and to care nothing of what others think. And they step forward and show loyalty and courage. That's what we see here. The rabbis stayed away from Jesus. The Pharisees stayed away from Jesus. All those who were respectable in society and male, they saw their own positions and respect and everything jeopardized by association with Jesus. You know what the women said? Phooey. That's in the Greek. They said, forget it. Look at him. There's no one like him. They identified it, and they stepped forward. Boy, and what, what they must have witnessed there with him. What they must have experienced. What they must have learned, enjoyed in the presence of Jesus Christ. And don't forget, Mary Magdalene, she features all through Jesus' ministry, especially later in Jesus' ministry. Joanna as well. Both Mary and Joanna witnessed the crucifixion. They watched where Joseph of Arimathea buried Jesus' body in his own personal tomb. Mary and Joanna returned then to that tomb with spices to treat Jesus' body. Even though, by the way, Joseph and Nicodemus had prepared Jesus' body already for burial, they said, no, we're going to bring it. We're going to bring our own spices. But his body wasn't there. So they were the first to witness the empty tomb. Not men, but women. They met the angel. They believed his report. And they obeyed his command to go back and quickly tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. Look, the message of the gospel, it's in the mouth of women first. In Luke 24.10, we read, it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and the Mary, the mother of James, and the other women who, with him who told those things to the apostles, but the words seemed to them an idle tale, and they, the apostles, did not believe them. Men, right? <laughs> so typical. Turn over, though, just quickly to John 20. Just quickly, John 20. After that unbelieving response of the men, you know what Mary did? She returned to the tomb. She went back to the empty tomb. And just to show you just a bit more of her nature and her character, take a look at John 20, verse 11 and following. 
Mary, she was at the tomb. She stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stopped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They've taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they've laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. And Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you've carried him away, please tell me where you've laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned, said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher, my teacher. And Jesus said to her, do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. And Mary went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord and that he had said these things to her. Isn't that beautiful? They didn't believe at the first proclamation. So Jesus doesn't say, it's okay, Mary, they're not going to believe you, a woman. I'm, I'll, I'll step in for you. No, he says, go on back and say it again. They're going to hear it from you, a woman. They're going to hear it from you, Mary. This former demoniac had been not only been, she'd not only been delivered from malevolent spiritual powers, she'd been rescued into the loving arms of her Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And Mary Magdalene had a very bright future ahead of her. Very bright. We don't know much about Susanna. You can go back to the text now. We don't know much about Susanna or the other women. Obviously, they're not named. But Joanna, she turns out to be a rather interesting connection, especially considering Luke's gospel. You may remember that Luke was a number of times a traveling companion and a ministry partner and a close friend of the Apostle Paul. Well, there was a man that was known to the Apostle Paul who was named Menaean. And according to Acts 13.1, Menaean was among the prophets and teachers of the church in Antioch. And, by the way, he was also a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch. The word that's translated lifelong friend is suntrafas. It refers to one who's brought up with somebody, like a, like a childhood friend. And it's highly probable that Luke, when conducting his research, compiling his research before writing this gospel, that he was put into contact with Menaean by Paul. So Menaean then put Luke in contact with Joanna. Joanna, with her inside access to the court and the affairs of Herod Antipas. She's provided the first-hand accounts for Luke into matters that involve Herod. That explains, actually, a lot of great, unique insight in Luke's Gospel, in particular, into Herod's thinking, into his superstitions, into also a whole section on Jesus' trial before Herod. The only record we have of that portion of Jesus' trial is in Luke's Gospel. All that very likely conveyed to Luke by Joanna. This woman, very much used of the Lord, beyond providing financial resources and support to Jesus and the Twelve during Jesus' earthly ministry, we're actually the beneficiaries of her further ministry even this morning. 
Well, as we draw our little study to a close, I'd like to return to the framework through which we should read this passage of Scripture. Not as a triumph of feminism. It's not it at all. As we've seen, this is all about how God uses means to achieve His ends. And we gain some insight into this passage as to how God intends ministry to happen. Even today, what principles of participation can we glean from this text? What do we see exemplified here that's consistent with the entire New Testament, even the entirety of Scripture, about participation in gospel ministry? First modeled by these women, what do we see? Several closing thoughts, just quickly. Number one, first principle, spiritual qualification. To participate in gospel ministry, there has to be spiritual qualification, namely that one must be a believer. Like these men and women, we must be following Jesus in true believing discipleship. Unbelievers don't propagate the gospel very well at all. They really do fumble the ball badly. We stick to believers. We stick to true disciples to propagate the ministry, to support the ministry. Second principle, the internal motivation. Those who participate in gospel ministry should serve Christ from an internal motivation, from a heart of loving gratitude. Considering the freedom we have from sin and Satan and death, considering the eternal life that we now possess, is there any other way to participate in gospel ministry than in loving gratitude? Third principle. Third principle, no gender discrimination. No gender discrimination. God created us male and female, made us both image bearers. As male and female, we are fallen, but then all of us saved from our sins by divine grace. So, as male and female, we participate in gospel ministry together. No place for discrimination in love and service for Christ. Fourth principle, number four, we serve in gender-appropriate vocation. Gender-appropriate vocation. What do we mean by that? We to participate in gospel ministry together without discrimination, but all of us submitting to Christ's decision to use men in positions of church leadership and women not in positions of church leadership. Paul's very clear about that in 1 Timothy 2.12 and following. Though women are very active in teaching, in evangelizing privately, even prophesying in some cases and having a a larger ministry to women, you're never going to find Christ sending them out as He did the 12 in Luke 9 or the 72 in Luke 10. Those are men. Some men, not all men, but some men were assigned to leadership roles, more publicly prominent roles. The women served, as this text shows, in less prominent roles who act in support of the gospel work. Sure, privately, teaching, ministering, evangelizing, defending the gospel just like men do. But in roles of church leadership and positions of leadership, men do that. Fifth principle, we serve with full devotion. Fifth principle, serving with full devotion. Just like the 12 that Jesus called. 
for the women to follow Christ in this kind of service, following along with his itinerant ministry, you know what this required of them? It required of them to sacrifice. They too, like the men, they had to leave everything and follow Christ. More we could say about that as well, but enough to say that spiritual qualification, internal motivation, no gender discrimination, even though we do submit to gender-appropriate vocation, and then all of us full and complete devotion. That's how we apply the principles to our own ministry in the service of gospel propagation, to see the gospel that Jesus Christ proclaimed far and wide, all to the glory of God the Father. Amen? Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for your wisdom and the kind of kind of little nuggets like this that you pack into what is just on the surface of it, a transition text for it to move from one narrative to to another, and we're so thankful for including men and women in the propagation of the gospel and support of the gospel. We thank you for how you do that even today. We thank you for our involvement in it, this gospel work. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to be faithful to the end that you set forward in Christ and also to the means that you intend us to achieve those ends. Pray that we would follow your will wholly, thoroughly, truly, faithfully. All to the glory of Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.